you're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In exactly two weeks, the Federal Drug Administration will vote on whether to approve an experimental drug to treat ALS, the degenerative nerve condition, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It comes after the reversal of a decision by an FDA committee last week. The drug was approved in Canada earlier this year, and it raised the hopes of families and friends of those living with this disease for which there is no cure. Today, uh, HPR's president and general manager, Jose Fajardo, joins us with his perspective. Good morning. Good morning. Catherine, thank you for letting me come back and talk about uh, not just my story, but uh, uh, this development with AMX-35, which is the drug that uh, we're hoping the FDA approves in uh, about two weeks. And, you know, when we last talked, the the FDA committee had just rejected that. Yeah, they were looking at data that uh, uh, didn't have enough uh, supporting data to uh, for the committee to vote it uh, of an affirmative. Uh, so uh, they continue to have some trials, uh, and those trials uh, provided additional data uh, to allow the uh, committee uh, to uh, vote in favor to advance it to the full FDA. Uh, AMX 35 uh, helps uh, with a slowing down uh, the um, killing off of motor neurons uh, and is uh, hopeful uh, to extend uh, or uh, slow down the progression of the disease, which uh, then would extend the life of folks like me uh, who are struggling with uh, ALS. And gosh, you know, the first time we talked, uh, I think you were diagnosed with ALS, but you were getting the symptoms was it in 2019? Yeah, in fall of 2019 was when I started my, I had the first onset of symptoms that I knew something wasn't right because I was running, I was working out, I was having balance issues, I was having uh, walking and running gait issues. Uh, And then it took a full year of testing uh, for uh, the final um, uh, uh, diagnosis, which occurred in May of 21. Uh, uh, And at that point, you know, I was still, I was walking with a cane. You know, when I first did my first interview with you, I, I walked in with a cane. Uh, my second interview, I, I came in here with an electric wheelchair. Uh, and uh, and now I'm in a power wheelchair uh, with uh, very, I mean, my left arm is pretty much useless. My left hand is useless. It's clawed. Uh, my right arm is becoming more and more weak every day. Um, my right hand is getting weaker. So I, I've lost the ability to write and to type. Uh, so I use uh, voice-to-text software uh, to write, uh, compose emails and memos. I'm having some uh, issues with my neck now as well, some weakness in my neck. Uh, my legs still remain a little bit strong. Um, but, the, you know, it's the, it's, that's the thing about the, the disease. It's, it progresses. Uh, and so we hope that uh, the FDA, by approving AMX 35, uh, then it would become available in a few weeks uh, in pharmacies for doctors to prescribe, uh, that I can get on that right away to hopefully continue the, the slowing down of the progression uh, and provide some relief uh, to me and to, to, you know, thousands and thousands of others. Um, that are just waiting for, you know, one other drug. Because right now there's only two drugs approved by the FDA for ALS, uh, uh, Radicava, which I'm not on, and Rolazole, which I am on. Uh, and so this would be the third drug that would be approved for, for ALS. And you were in, involved in trials yeah. um, for a couple of years. You were traveling, oh gosh, across country. Right. And you were fortunate because your family... Um, lives in some of those cities where you could uh, yeah in Dallas get this. yeah my 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 brother-in-law lives in Dallas so we were able to stay in his home uh, and travel to Texas Neurology for it was like a six-month trial of traveling back and forth uh, that drug um, they had enough data uh, to discontinue that trial because they figured out it wasn't working there's still a number of drugs that are in trial uh, with the Healy platform. Uh, and we hope that one of those drugs will uh, show good benefits for the ALS community and then go to the FDA for approval. Um, 
But uh, it's you know that that was uh, <laughs> I'm glad I participated you know but it was it was a struggle because every time I got on that plane it was more and more difficult you know to travel and you know it's during the pandemic and so there are all those concerns mm-hmm. about you know just your general health and COVID and wearing masks and shields and 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 wondering if the guy next to you is vaccinated yeah. or you know I mean so yeah I mean just traveling in general is tough and you know with all the cancellations and the the weather issues with the heat. Uh, and so, yeah, I imagine just being in a wheelchair, it's just more difficult. Oh, yeah. Well, even like, you know, getting uh, transported into your your seat on the airplane uh, was a struggle, you know, because you have to uh, transfer from a wheelchair to an aisle wheelchair <clears throat> and then uh, be lifted into your seat. Uh, and then depending on my wife, Jennifer, uh, to get me to the restroom when needed, and, and that proved to be, you know, more and more of a struggle. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the struggle was so much that we decided to postpone a trip that we had planned uh, in August uh, to go to Duke University uh, to see a, 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 another neurologist. Um, it just got so difficult to travel that we decided to, to put that off. Um, and so it's, um, you know, I depend on Jennifer now for, you know, almost 100% of everything I do at home. Uh, she helps uh, with uh, dressing me, getting me undressed, getting into my recliner, uh, getting me to the bathroom, uh, shower, eating. Um, I'm 99% dependent on, on her as my you know, primary health caregiver. Uh, and those are, you know, ALS it can be a very silent disease because a lot of people kind of get back into the shadows. Caregivers um, don't get the credit that they deserve. Uh, yeah, so I, I get emotional about that yeah. because... Uh, no, I know yeah. with with Jennifer being there, you know, uh, to help you out. You know, we had, did have a listener uh, share with us, and we did stories about polio, and she shared that she has been diagnosed with post-polio, and the doctor says there's really nothing you can do. You'll just start um, uh, losing, uh, yep. you know, your, your muscles, and, yep. and they'll just be weaker and weaker. Yeah, and, and we're, you know, as my progression advances, we're already talking with uh, – doctors about getting a feeding tube installed proactively uh, so that we have that, you know, already in place in case I do lose the ability to swallow because uh, we don't want to wait till the last minute for that to occur. And, you know, I, I recall well, uh, passing by your office and, and you were you called me in to, because you were experimenting with the software with your voice, you know, because yep. you're worried about, you know, about your voice. And yeah, you so, yeah, and if, you know, you can hear my voice already, it's a little bit softer. I'm struggling with my voice a little bit. Um, and so I do have my voice already banked uh, so that if I do lose my voice, I could use a computer uh, to communicate uh, with my synthesized voice um, that it's already banked uh, in the cloud and ready to be downloaded into a, a gadget that will allow me to do that. Yeah, so these are just the realities of ALS, you know, and, and people may not know what you're struggling with, what other families are struggling with. And this week, um, you know, there is a, a walk. Yep. Yeah, <clears throat> the uh, Golden West chapter of the ALS Foundation is hosting their annual walk at Capulani Park. Uh, I, I will be there because I'm going to be honored with the uh, Heroes Award uh, for the work that I've done with advocacy. Uh, one of our team members at Hawaii Public Radio, Liberty Peralta, is hosting a HPR team where people can make contributions. Uh, we'll put the link on our website. Uh, then the following week, Orange Theory Fitness, the gym that I used to work yes. out at, is hosting their second annual Dry Try fundraiser for the ALS Association. Uh, and we'll provide a QR code also on the website. If, if our listeners want to uh, help the cause, they can give to the HPR walking team or they can give to the OTF uh, fundraising page as well. Uh, and every dollar goes to uh, research, uh, but also to help families here in Hawaii uh, who are struggling with uh, just services. And uh, so all those dollars go for a long way. And if, if anybody can give $5 or $10, uh, that's a great way to support me and support uh, the cause. Do we know how many people here in Hawaii um uh, have come down with this disease? I don't, but every day I, I learn of one other person, you know, who has ALS. So it does impact a lot of people. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't discriminate, you know, white, black, Hispanic, military, non-military. 
um, young, old, people who are in perfect health like I was, uh, people that aren't in health. So uh, it's, it's a terrible disease that we hope to eliminate, in not, maybe not my lifetime, but hopefully in the next lifetime. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing your story and, and your progression so that people understand more about this disease. Well, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much, Jose. We've been talking with Jose Fajardo, HBR president and general manager about ALS. We will post uh, links to more information about this weekend's Walk to Defeat ALS on the conversation page of our website later today. What better investment is there than in the education of our young people? The University of Hawaii Foundation just announced a record $165 million from donors at a time when our state has struggled through an economic and health crisis. The generosity of those in our community uh, stands to make an impactful change as we steer full speed ahead. We talked to uh, UH Foundation CEO Tim Dolan about the good that this money can do. $165 million, it's, it's, uh, in, in any year, it's a... It's it feels like it's a good year for us, but um, in particular in these times where the economy has in the last 12 months struggled a bit. But keep in mind that this is for fiscal year 21-22. So I think the the reality is the economic situation on island eight months ago was a bit stronger than it is today. And a lot of the results are there's a little bit of a lag time. But the accounting for the surge, what, what accounts for the surge in our fundraising performance I think there are a couple of things I would say to that is increasingly donors just want to know if their support is really going to impact and benefit the community. And I think this is where UH is really starting to, to meet its lofty potential. And, and I guess what I mean by that is when you look at training, for instance, the fact that we're putting nurses out there and entrepreneurs and engineers and teachers and doctors and, and, and the list goes on and on, you basically name a profession and the University of Hawaii is training its, its future leaders. I think when the community, they think about, okay, where do we want to invest our philanthropic dollars? UH is fortunately in a position where we end up being part of that conversation, and we feel very privileged and honored to be part of that. And we've had some very generous gifts. That's right. And leading the path in, in those larger gifts, obviously, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative with their $50 million gift for ocean science. And then they also gave, as you know, another $10 million, a separate gift a little bit later for um, our medical school for the rural training on Kauai, both hugely important to our community, and they're going to have sort of a lasting influence in terms of their impact. And I think what feels so good about those two gifts, in addition to the research and and, and the science that's going to get done, is this is a world-class foundation who does a lot of scrutiny in terms of before they give, and they recognize that the research strengths and the community strengths at the University of Hawaii was as good here as, as anywhere you'll find. So it was really a great sense of feeling emboldened by their their homework and the partnership we, we have with CZI. It just felt like it was a great marriage for us. Well, you know, over the years, we have seen the endowments grow, you know, into record territory. Um, you know, I think this, just the support that we've had from the community, you know, our researchers have been able to pull in, you know, millions of dollars in research grants. And it's just really kind of building uh, on top of the success, you know, of, of so many people. That's it. And and it, not only the research, but the fact that our faculty, our academics are studying the most relevant social issues of our day, whether it's affordable housing or smarter growth for tourism. The moniker that President Lasner is really keen on, and I, I agree, it's it's a really smart one. It's not just research, it's research that matters. And that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to do the kind of research at this university that matters most to our community. And I think that's where UH has really hit its stride. And, you know, there are donations to help agriculture at a time when we really value our farmers and a lot of what, you know, CTAR, you know, Tropical Ag has done to help 
our growers, you know, figure out which crops are the best, you know, based on our climate. All of that is going to help our resiliency at the end of the day. That's right. And we had some nice gifts this year directed towards CTAR in the agricultural space from players who really know that scene and they know that doing research in that space is critical to our local economy. But, you know, ultimately it comes down to the trust question and whether it's alumni or it's former faculty or staff giving back. And I should say that a large percentage of our former faculty, our emeriti faculty, end up being some of our most generous donors and talk about a group that knows us well. I mean, they know our they know our pluses, our minuses, our, you know, all our liver spots and our bruises. Mm-hmm. And this is a group that is, you know, they've spent their life in the academy. And to see, I mean, we had a very nice gift this past year from the family and friends of Professor Arthur Statz. You might remember that name. He passed on this past year, but Professor Statz invented the modern day timeout. Yes. Which was, you know, for misbehaving children. And he turned this practice into a staple of behavioral psychology. And, and people wanted to commemorate this great academic, this great man who did wonderful things at UH. And it's, it's fun to imagine that the timeout was actually conceived of on our campus. Yes. And, uh, you know, we did uh, feature him uh, when he passed. And, uh, you know, as a parent who used time out to raise her children, uh, I feel uh, deeply uh, indebted to him, you know, just for those behavioral insights, uh, you know, what works for your child, how to help them succeed and and, uh, have those limits. So, yeah, he's helping uh, so many people uh, across the globe with that concept. He was indeed, although I have to say, Catherine, that my nose against the wall in the corner of the room gives me a few shudders of, of memories that I'd rather not recall, but <laughs> that's another discussion. You know, we've had uh, donations that will help with scholarships. You know, everybody's talking about college debt, and, uh, you know, it, it's so amazing when, uh, you know, our young minds can be helped out with those scholarships. I know there's there are scholarships that were set aside for UH Hilo. That's right. We had a very nice anonymous gift of $3 million for scholarships at UH Hilo. I mean, in total, we raised over $35 million for student aid. And, you know, it's not just scholarships, but think of the Harold Castle Foundation funded the HANA Career Pathways, which was a really, really innovative program designed to train our community colleges that lead credentials in healthcare, tech, and, and other things like skilled trades. So, I mean, that's one of the joys of working in a system that has 10 campuses. It's not just UH Manoa, it's, it's, it's these seven other community colleges across the islands that do such good work with so many different diverse populations. You know, and I think, uh, you know, the, the big desire to nurture innovation you know, to help us move away from, you know, such a reliant economy on tourism. If we can nurture those minds to find other ways to, uh, you know, help our dollar, uh, a bottom line, our, our, our dollar kind of grow and how to, you know, leverage that dollar. Uh, you know, you've got that center there uh, at the Manoa campus that's underway. That's right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because Susan Yamada has been working very hard at the RISE program. So this is the residences for innovative student entrepreneurs. I think they've raised almost $4 million to help that program. And you might recall that UH Foundation is actually the owner of that um, new property. And we're super excited to be part of that project because about a year from now, 370 beds will be filled with budding entrepreneurs who are going to make a huge difference for our community and and to give them the scholarship support and the leg up they need to be successful is um, it's just it feels really good it feels wonderful yeah well we're in a good spot now and I know you know we, we're we've got challenges with uh, inflation <laughs> nipping away at our heels but you know we like to think that success begets success and that. Uh, I know, uh, I think the story that I saw online has been shared a a couple thousand times, so that's a good thing. Uh, And hopefully it just gives pause uh, in our community. Say, hey, you know, put money where your mouth is and and, uh, uh, help our communities across the state. 
that's it. And and we owe that community a great debt of gratitude because they're the ones who are are out there championing um, the cause of helping our students and our and our faculty reach their highest potential. So we're very humbled by the support that's coming our way, but we don't want to rest on our laurels. We want to constantly endeavor to work harder to raise even more money so that we can help more students and more teachers and more faculty. That was Tim Dolan, CEO of the University of Hawaii's Foundation, talking with us about the record-setting donations that it has received to help raise the bar across the UH system. now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Today we spotlight a story about parking. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Happy almost Aloha Friday. (laughs) Yes. And you know, I remember doing a story about the neighborhood that you've spotlighted. Uh, Oh gosh, that was several years ago, like five years ago. And and I was surprised to learn that parking is like the number one complaint in the city of uh, county of Honolulu. Yeah, so that neighborhood's called Wilson Tract. It's part of Kalihi Valley. And about five years ago, the the residents there agreed to form the first neighborhood parking zone on the island of Oahu, the city-sanctioned parking zone. Uh, it was initially launched with about 200 homes. Uh, later it grew. It was very successful, so it grew to uh, about 430 properties in that area. Uh, but I took a look at it because that was five years ago, and I was uh, interested to learn that it is still technically a pilot project and uh, it hasn't been made permanent in any way. Uh, residents haven't been paying any fees into that that uh, program for getting restricted parking privileges there. But at the same time, they say they'd be happy to. Uh, the enforcement has really fallen off, and it's kind of in this limbo phase uh, that it's it's just kind of hovering that way. Yes, and I remember talking to some of the families there, and, and they were a little frustrated because they were having people who live outside the neighborhood uh, in, the, in their nearby streets park uh, in, in that you know, very narrow area. Uh, and, and some of the homes were coming from the state housing project there. That's right. For this particular area, there, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a hot button issue. But uh, the reason Wilson Tract was basically chosen for this one was uh, there was a lot of overflow parking and other issues, uh, uh, cars that didn't have the proper permits and whatnot at the Kamehameha for uh, public housing across from Likelike Hi- uh, Highway were, were moving in there and there was lots of loitering and, and other issues. So that's kind of why this area was chosen in particular. Uh, but across the island, you know, parking is such a hot button issue for for residents everywhere, you know, uh, where it can really be a free for all. And it's it's uh, you know, you think about the monster home debate, right? So much of that conversation and the concerns that come from surrounding residents uh, have to do with parking and availability of, of parking in their neighborhood. So that's kind of why this this restricted parking zone conversation has been particularly particularly interesting and why I wanted to take a look at it. And so, gosh, I mean, it languished, uh, you know, I guess the question is why, you know, why hasn't it become permanent? Why aren't those uh, residents paying fees? Right. The wheels of government, right, even on the the local level. So from from the best I could tell from my reporting, you know, talking to city leaders and transportation officials, you know, what it really comes down to is that the city council needs to enact enabling legislation that establishes the fees for these kind of programs in these zones before they can be permanently established. And uh, I also spoke with Councilwoman uh, Carol Fukunaga on this issue, and she mentioned that at DTS, you know, she's been pushing uh, on this Kalihi Valley uh, 
restricted parking zone or RPZ. But what she's run into is a lot of uh, turnover at DTS where the officials and the staffers that were really pushing it along uh, retired. And uh, with the the new folks that are coming in, it's really been lumped into uh, broader, more comprehensive uh, plans and projects to better manage parking and, and transportation and 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 travel around the island in general. So so those forces are kind of running up against it, and that's where it's really stalled in, in moving things ahead. Yeah, because, I mean, Carol was very involved. Uh, Joey Manahan was, was very involved. Uh, the uh, transportation uh, council chair, um, mm-hmm. you know, who isn't there now, I, but we've got Radian Cadero. Uh, any update? on where this is going to go now? Uh, it's really to be determined, but, you know, there are residents in Palolo Valley, Macaulay, Mo'ili'ili, even over, you know, on the Windward side, Haiku, over by the Haiku Stairs in Kaneohe, you know, that really, that there are just pockets around the island, and there's 200,000 cars by DTS's estimates that are stored overnight on these neighborhood streets. So it's it really is kind of an interesting issue. All right. Well, we'll watch, see what happens. But thank you so, so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. Um, you can read his full story at civilbeat.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of Surviving Storms. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding the strength to meet adversity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. When it comes to climate change policy, some of the fiercest advocates for the environment have been students. But with limited resources of their own, what can young people accomplish in the fight against climate change? The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Dyson Chi, a senior at the University of Hawaii uh, at Manoa campus, and the head of the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition about the power of the student perspective. Growing up in Hawaii, I spent so much time in the ocean. I began to notice at a young age, I would say around 10 to 12 years old, that there were some issues happening with the oceans and the beaches that I always went back to. I would go back and I would notice it was very slow and very gradual, but inevitably there would be more dead corals, more algal growth, uh, replacing those corals, less fish. My grandpa and my dad would always tell me stories about how when they were kids, they always caught tons of octopus, tons of fish, easy to find them. And yet now it was like, you know, calming through a desert to try to find those things. And I think that was my first experience with climate change. I didn't know that it was called climate change. I didn't know that had anything to do with this issue of climate change. But for me, that experience was personal because it affected the very lives that I led and the lives that my parents led in the past. And when did you start to have language for climate change that put your personal experience into a bigger context? I think around the time I turned 13, I began to pick up on not just the issue of climate change, but also plastic pollution in particular, which is directly related to climate change because plastics are made from fossil fuels. And once I became aware that climate change, plastic pollution, and these other environmental issues were were a problem to the place that I call home, that's when I began to pick up on kind of the language and understanding that revolves around climate change discussions. So it started from a very early age, but of course it was always, you know, there's always new things to learn. When I was 13, people said, wow, six feet of sea level rise, that's a little extremist. Now, six feet of sea level rise is pretty realistic. And what do you see climate change looking like in your life? I guess not optimistically. I see it as a major changer in my life. I mean, when you look at the sea level rise maps, by the time we hit nine feet of sea level rise, my house will be beachfront property. The sewers around my house will be backing up. And in all likelihood, I'm not going to be able to live where I am. 
And this is by the year 2100 when I would turn 98. There's so many other issues. I mean, the beaches that I grew up in, that I called home, for example, Magic Island, they would no longer exist. They would cease to exist. There would be tons of other impacts. We would have much stronger hurricanes. There was a documentary done not too long ago that showed that if we lose our ports, if a big hurricane comes in and destroys our ports, destroys our airport infrastructure, we have, what, I think a week of food about to last ourselves. And then we're out. On the more optimistic side, though, I think climate change as a future, some of it is inevitable. We have gone far enough where some amount of sea level rise is going to happen. Um, it is mostly a matter of how slow we can make it happen. And if we can make it slow enough, then we can move our infrastructure. We can adjust it to change. You know, the Hawaii that I'm going to be around, you know, at 2100 is going to look different. That is for sure. If you look at the data and information and studies that we have, that much is inevitable. But what I'm hoping is that because we face this tremendous issue, we are going to make changes that make our society better. We are going to live more in sync with the environment rather than separating humans and the environment as two different things. Because at the end of the day, both depend on each other, both interact with each other every single second. Sea level rise seems like it's a particularly potent aspect of climate change because it's one that impacts you directly and that you can measure, and because of your relationship with Hawaii and its oceans. You head up the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition. What other particular experiences or concerns do people in the coalition have? What feels really pressing to folks in your demographic? The issues resonate quite similarly, all of us living on an island state. I think some of the biggest issues involve, you know, is there going to be a place for me in Hawaii's future? And this question is not limited to just climate change, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of factors that we consider into this. But climate change is one of the major ones, because if the place that we currently live in gets inundated, if the places that we live in become more and more inhospitable because of the issues of climate, because of climate impacts, then in all likelihood, we see no future for ourselves here. We see lots of people talking about the brain drain, right, where people are leaving Hawaii to go to the mainland and elsewhere because there's better opportunities abroad, because the cost of living is cheaper abroad. If you throw on climate impacts onto that, things don't look so good for Hawaii. And our generation, most of the people I know, are all already leaving because they see a lack of opportunities here. If climate change becomes another barrier to them staying in Hawaii and building a future here, that's not a thought that I like to think about. In the work that you do, but just also in your position as a young person, as a student, when you bring up these issues of climate change, particularly as they impact your fellow students, your fellow young people, do you feel hurt? Do you feel like stakeholders in the highest level of policy who are making decisions about our state are listening to you? Sometimes yes, more often than not no. I think there is a very high degree of frustration that comes around, especially when we make it very clear that these are particular changes, particular actions that we want to see happening and yet it seems like we need at least 100 pieces of community testimony in order to outweigh the testimony of one lobbyist, of one developer, of one particularly politically powerful person. And that's a little frustrating because we are taught in high school and in college that we live in a democracy. Your voice is just as equal and just as important as anyone else's, yet more often than not, we feel like that doesn't hold true in government. Sometimes we do feel heard, um, especially with particularly key legislators. We have felt that they're really in touch, that they are really helpful allies in combating the climate crisis together. But as a whole, institutionally speaking, I think that's a bit of a rarity. You're participating in a panel this coming Saturday, in which there will be representation from stakeholders at UH, in the legislature, as well as KIUC and Punahou School. What's the value 
of having the student perspective in those types of high-level policy discussions? The student perspective brings in the perspective of people who know that they are going to face among the worst impacts of climate change out of any current living generation. That doesn't mean that existing generations aren't going to feel that impacts. That's why the, the HECA panel um, brings together people from multiple generations because all of us are going to feel the impact. People that we care about and love are all going to feel the impact. And at the end of the day, climate change is an intergenerational issue. At the end of the day, we're all working together as allies to solve the issues. And so those different perspectives, I think, helps to bolster and strengthen our efforts. The most important solution and the most important way that individuals can make a difference in climate change and in almost any issue is to be civically involved, to take part in our democracy. A lot of times people say that I'm just one person, I make no difference in a world filled with eight billion of us. But in reality, when you combine the powers of multiple individuals, when multiple people testify on a bill or have a protest to get a bill passed, your voices become amplified by a tremendous magnitude. And when you do that, that is when we see change happen. That is when we build the future that we want to have. Thank you so much for coming down to the studio to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Savannah. It's a pleasure to be here. That was Dyson Chi, UH student and executive director of the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition on the role of student voices in climate change policy. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. Chi will be part of a panel discussion this Saturday sponsored by the Hawaii Environmental Change Agents. We'll have more information on our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. Batya Mesquita is from the Netherlands. When she taught college in the U.S., she did what came naturally. She told her students when their writing was boring. And for me, that was a way of taking them seriously and for giving them straight feedback. Navigating the unspoken rules of different cultures this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. Opens September 17th. comedian Augie Tolba, better known to many of us as Augie T, gave what was marketed as his last stand. It was his final big show on March 2nd, 2019 at the Blaisdell Arena. At the time, it was widely assumed by many that the 30-year comedy veteran had retired from comedy. Later that year, he announced he was running for a Honolulu City Council seat and in 2020 was elected to represent District 9. But just three years after his last stand, Augie T is returning to the stage for a series of shows entitled Laugh with Aloha. So what brought him out of retirement and how does being in elected office impact his comedy? The Conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Tobo yesterday morning. What brought you out of retirement? You know, when I said I was going to slow down and I don't know when I got mixed up with the retirement, I, I said I was going to stop doing big shows because I feel like it's hard to like leave something that you love doing, you know, mm-hmm. and I did this for 30 years, but I also knew that I needed to get focused because I also love serving my community. A lot of people never realize that I, you know, I worked for Mayor Billy Kinoy for two years. Mm-hmm. 
And then I went to work for Lieutenant Governor Shan Tetsui. So there's a side of me, there's a nerdy side of me that loves government. And there's a side of me that loves giving back, yeah. you know, and in the 30 years, I've gotten so much from people and I was able to give back so much more. And it's hard to, to leave something that you love doing. So, you know, I made the decision in 2019 that I was going to just slow down. I wasn't going to quit, but I was just going to slow down. And then I wanted to really get focused on city council. And of course, we all know what happened. I did. I focused. I actually won a race during the pandemic. You know, while I was in that pandemic, like everybody else, locked up, confined. Man, I realized the importance of me getting back on stage and talking and, you know, for my own personal mental health, honestly, because day in and day out, I got to deal with a lot of challenges in our community. You know, I represent a district of over 157,000 registered voters, and it has been the most amazing ride. I was asked to do a private show, and I got back on stage, and I realized how much I miss it. You know, when you leave something, sometimes you just want to walk away from it. Like I box professionally. When I knew I couldn't give 100% to training and boxing, I just left. Then went back, tried to do it again. But with comedy, you know, I love performing. I love being in front yeah. of people and being locked up for like two years. Man, I started writing, you know, and I realized how much I miss doing it. And then at the same time, you know, I wanted to show people that you can be a public servant and you can enjoy all the things you love doing. You know, a lot of people don't realize that city council is part-time work. And whoever told me that lie, that it's part-time, they're lying because I work every single day. But being able to balance the three hats that I wear, I do radio in the morning and then I leave, I go to city council. And then on a weekend, I get this escape now. And I'm not doing big shows, you know, so I'm excited that I get to do that. And I get to bring laughter in this you know, crazy time of a lot of divide, a lot of uneasiness. Yeah. And laughter is the greatest medicine, I believe. How does being a council member affect the kind of jokes that you can tell? So things didn't change for me. But what happened was I did this Lucky Owl commercial. And then people started complaining because, you know, they thought that, I was using my power to get on commercials, but these are people who didn't know my past, you know, that I did yeah. this. This is the way I made money for my family. So, you know, I had to go in front of ethics and I learned a lot, you know, on what I can, I cannot say. The beautiful thing about comedy is that a lot of people don't like politics. So for me, this escape and I've always worked clean. So there's nothing really controversial about anything that I'm saying. And I basically talk about my family life and me. I am going to talk about what I've learned the last year or two years about COVID and some other things and share new things about my family. But, you know, so long as I'm not talking about policy and my views, I'm okay. You know, um, so long as that there's no malice behind anything I'm saying that going to cause people to feel uncomfortable. It's all good. That's why I'm excited. I'm excited because I think, uh, I, you know, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my family. And I saw a lot of craziness in this last two years. Yeah, yeah, especially in the last two years, man. And speaking of the craziness that's gone on, since that last big show in March of 2019, we've seen some crazy stuff happen just in the comedy world. You know, we've seen comedian Dave Chappelle mm -hmm. upset a whole community with some of his jokes. We saw yeah. comedian Chris Rock get slapped by Will Smith at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Is what is funny, is that changing or are our audiences just different now? Yeah, I think a little bold. At the end of the day, you have a choice to go and watch something. It's like you get on choice to listen to a certain radio station or watch a certain TV show. Mm -hmm. Look, if you like find something, you can find them. If you go into a show to be, you know, objective or to challenge, you can probably find it and you can probably be upset. And if this is you, stay home because there's a lot of people that want to escape and laugh. Yeah. And it's sad because I was taught at a very young age that if you're just truthful, right, you're going to be okay. And sometimes the truth hurts and there's some people that can take it, some people cannot. And I say, like, if you're sensitive to things, then maybe you should just not attend these shows 
but then don't rob everybody else yeah. because you have a certain view or understanding. That's okay. We should learn how to agree to disagree on a lot of things. And comedy is still a sacred place where you can come and not worry. And you shouldn't worry if I respond a certain way to a joke. That's why comedy is done in one dark room so that we don't have to look around and hide to laugh. We can feel like, you know, there's this freedom of expression and we're laughing at this guy because he said something that was maybe relevant to you. You know, I write I write jokes or I write comedy based on things that made me laugh instantly. If I see something, George Wallace, this great comedian, mm. he told me, write the things that make you laugh instantly. Even if it's like the most stupidest thing because that's where comedy comes from. If you can find that truth in that moment, there's a good chance that somebody experienced that same thing. So a guy that's on stage talking knows whether or not he has malice in his heart, right? People can smell the BS. Yeah. You know, uh, so that's why, like, I'm so thankful for the 30 years, you know, being able to express and tell people how I feel wrong or right. Mm -hmm. And being able to keep people entertained for, for, for 30 years. And that's pretty awesome that you got advice directly from George Wallace. That guy is a legend. And yeah. that guy is hilarious. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that you've learned about Oahu's lawmaking process in your time <laughs> as a council member that maybe the average that's, person might not know? One of the things that I was committed to doing is to really understand every aspect of the job. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that I've learned the last year and a half that we do a bad job at giving you information. Like a lot of people don't know the difference between the city, state, and the federal. That's true. Yeah, they think you got to do all these things. And when you realize the levels or how enormous this thing is, you know, I become more empathetic. Like, okay, I, I get it. I understand why it takes a long time. Yeah. So you find ways. Like one of the greatest things for me is that I now in a position where I can put you and somebody else in one room and we can come together and talk. And if it makes sense, man, I can advocate for that. And we can try to see, and maybe this will be a good thing for our community. Because my job at the end of the day is to vote yes and no on items, right? That I hope can make your life a little bit better. And I can always make the correct vote and you can never ever make people happy. But when you give out information and you ask for people's opinion, because that's what we should do. We should always be listening and asking to see or make good judgments. So I realize, like, as I'm working and learning and understanding, I, like, bring that information to you because I think we do a bad job at giving people information. And every time I learn something new, man, it's so exciting. At 54, you still can teach old dogs new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, right on, man. You know, growing up in Kalihi, did you ever see yourself in this place having such a prolific comedy career, being a Honolulu City Council member? Is that something you ever imagined for yourself? You know, I'm writing a book right now. And chapter one starts off with me being sworn in. Someone asked me how I felt that day. And, you know, I've had so many wonderful things happen to me in my life. My childhood was never easy. I talk about that in the book. But there are so many great victories because of amazing people in my life that influenced me growing up. You know, my teachers, family members. My dad would send me away to Maui every year because he never liked me hanging around the kids in my neighborhood because we grew up in public housing. So I would go hang out with my older cousins on Maui. My auntie took me to go see Yvonne Elliman when Saturday Night Live was like the number one soundtrack. But Andy Bumatai was opening for Yvonne Element. And I saw Andy Bumatai when I was in the fourth grade. And I knew exactly what I wanted to become yeah. because my auntie exposed me to the arts at one yeah. young age. And then as I got older, I got into boxing. And my boxing coach taught me great lessons in life and that if you were the first one in the gym, the last one out, and you work hard, you pay attention, you give 110%, you can do amazing things. And I was able to win the Golden Gloves when I was... 16 years old, I got to box in amazing amateur boxing championships. I turned professional, had six professional fights, and then I became a comedian 
soon after working at Kapiolani Medical Center for 16 years because wow. I had to take care of my family. Right. But taking dares, stepping outside of your comfort zone, taught me many great lessons in life. And when I decided to run for office, I had great people in my life like Mayor Billy Kinoy, mm -hmm. who said, hey, come over to the Big Island, come come work for me. And the people was like, you're hiring a comedian. And you know what he told him? He said, no, I'm hiring a communicator. And he gave me creed. My daughter, who runs a foundation, Brave Hawaii, for anti-bullying, said, Papa, why don't you use your celebrity to do some good? You should run. And she encouraged me to run. My wife, my family, who support all the crazy things that, you know, I come up with. So when I'm standing there and I'm, I'm raising my hand and I'm being sworn in, I'm going, wow, this is just another cool part of my life. I, yeah. like... It felt the same when I won the Golden Gloves. It felt the same when I won my very first speech tournament. And I look at everything in life like you was put there for a reason. So take advantage of that. So like at 54, being able to learn and do all these great things and being a part of great discussion, man, I think I'm the luckiest guy. And there's no complaints. I can, I can like, <laughs> you know how people like, oh, what kind of legacy you can leave back? There's going to be a lot of people that remember me for a lot of crazy times in my life. The boxing, mm -hmm. the comedy, the city councilman. But I think, you know, hopefully, you know, an amazing dad. A dad that worked hard and took care of his family. If it's one thing, that would be like the coolest thing. Thanks so much for talking story with me today, man. No, thank you, man. I appreciate the time. Aloha. That was local stand-up comedian and Honolulu council member Augie Tomba talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Agi T will be performing at Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island tomorrow night and will bring his Laugh with Aloha tour to Hawaii Theater on Saturday. You can find links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We're all out of time now. Up tomorrow, well, we're going to take a beach day. We'll listen back to some of our favorite interviews about people who work and study the ocean. Share your story ideas. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.